Uh, Phil asked me to preach uh, some weeks ago, and uh, he gave me the date, and uh, then told me that it was going to be right after he had finished with his uh, sermon series uh, called Your New Beginning. And so I thought, I was going to take it one step beyond that and talk a little bit about after the new beginning and look at the first letter of John's. Now, we have been going through the Gospel of John for uh, a number of weeks, and I want us to explore then uh, one of John's letters in thinking about after we have started in on this great relationship with Jesus, what are some of the things that John wanted to make sure that we knew? So we're going to have a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for uh, this church. We're thankful for your church universal and all the other millions of people that are uh, gathering together today to, to praise you and to hear your word being spoken. And we just thank you that we're able to be a part of that today. Uh, bless our time together and your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So after the new beginning, I want you to think a little bit about John, the Apostle John, uh, the disciple John, uh, the one whom Jesus loved as he described himself. I want you to kind of picture, first of all, John in the days of Jesus' ministry, uh, his youthful, youthful energy. He's called one of the sons of thunder. And he was you know, very fiery and uh, enthusiastic, very zealous. And uh, that's the picture that he portrays and that we see in the Gospels. And then, of course, we know that as you know, time went by, uh, John, uh, later on in his life, wrote the Gospel um, of, about Jesus. And then uh, he became a very, very important figure in the churches. Um, we know that he spent a lot of time, especially with the church in Ephesus, as well as other churches uh, throughout the region. Uh, this is uh, just a few decades after, of course, the crucifixion. But we are seeing the church has exploded all throughout uh, in Europe, parts of Asia Minor, northern Africa, and other places. And John, now you can maybe picture him more uh, wiser, older, maybe gray-haired or silver-haired, um, someone with a lot of uh, passion still for the church, but also a lot of compassion for the people in the churches that he served, people that he loved very dearly. And so, now we have John writing letters to these believers. And in the, in the first letter that we see in 1 John, we see some things that I, I believe he was trying to, to do in order to uh, help assure those believers, help to uh, convict them, as well as encourage them in their walk with Christ. So imagine him now as a much older man and wanting to share these important insights with these people that he loved. The first thing that I think that John wanted to do was to offer up some assurance of what it is that these Christians had received. What did they know and what was it that God that they had pledged their lives to? It's a very important thing to have an accurate picture of who Jesus is, have an accurate picture of who God is. 
need to have a really a good, true understanding. I had a class reunion this summer, and it was really interesting. You know, I went to the class reunion, uh, and I had in my mind, you know, some visions of what all these, who all these people were that I were gonna, that we were gonna get together and meet with, and uh, a lot of it was uh, based on my memories of them, forty years ago. That's a long time ago. Um, last time I had seen them. Some, of course, live in Libby, so I knew them, and I had a uh, pretty good idea of them, but it was amazing then at the reunion to meet a lot of people and go, wow, they are so much different than I envisioned them uh, in my mind. And we can do the same thing sometimes with God. We can have our own kind of little picture, our own vision of, of who he is. I was reading, oh, this has been a few weeks ago, um, I'm not sure why I was uh, looking into this, but I just discovered some articles uh, about my alma mater, Ozark Christian College. And they were going, this was, this was some years ago, I mean, not a long time ago, but a few years ago, and they were going through a kind of a controversial period of time. Um, there were uh, some gay students um, who were uh, questioning the you know, Ozark's um, behavior code. Uh, which states that uh, that they prohibit homosexuality, and so they were you know you can imagine in the light of uh, a lot of other schools and the, the things that are going on in other places uh, where you know those students are to be uh, welcomed and uh, they're to be um, treated like any other they have uh, all the, you know the tolerance of of those kinds of things and Matt Proctor, the president of Ozark Christian College, very lovingly but firmly reiterated what uh, Ozark's behavior code is based on the scriptures. And I began to think about that as well as in my own life, uh, that, you know, whenever I, I question or I wonder about the things that God has commanded us or taught us, you know, what, what would it be, be like if I were to meet God face to face. If I actually stood before him and looked him in the eye and he looked me in my eye, would I be able to um, question the things that he has said? Would I be able to justify my behavior? Would I be able to defend the things that I think um, you know, God should do? And I thought, you know, maybe we all need to kind of think about that. I don't think we would be able to. I think you would have to uh, just quietly and silently humble yourself before God and what, he has, and what he has taught us. So it's very important for us to have a really good vision of who God is because we, we want to see him for who he is. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, uh, it says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The first thing that John wants us to, uh, to be assured of and to understand about who God is is that he is light. There's no better metaphor there for uh, the purity and the, uh, the holiness of God than that description of him. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, 
It says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So God is light, and God is righteous. And then in 1 John chapter 4, he says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Those three pictures, God is light, God is righteousness, and God is love. When we harmonize those three together and put them all into the context of one person, it gives us a true vision of who God really is. And that's the first thing, I think, or one of the things that John offers up to us in this letter. They're very, very important. We're going to be looking at a lot of passages in, in the book of 1 John. So if you haven't turned your Bible there yet, um, that's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, we're going to be moving around and jumping around, but hopefully um, in those few pages of the letter, you'll be able to find the scriptures that we are looking at as we go. So the first thing, to assure us of, of what we learn and who God is. The second thing that I think John wants to do for us as you know, new believers, if you will, is to warn us against false teachings, false doctrine. Again, the church at this time is uh, just uh, some decades old, and already now we are seeing that uh, people, individuals, leaders in the church have uh, been taking certain doctrines or taking certain beliefs and, and taking them maybe to an extreme and twisting them in certain ways. And so we're seeing now John having to address some of these false teachings. He says in 1 John 2.26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So those people obviously existed. Those who are trying to deceive and lead them astray, and, and we still have that in the church. And so it's something that we need to, to address. One of the first ones that uh, John addresses here is any doctrine, any false teaching that denies the reality of the incarnation. There was a group that were identified later on as and called Gnostics. Gnostics come from a word that means to know, the word Gnos. And these Gnostics uh, believed foundationally that because of the fall, that all matter, which includes flesh, our flesh, is evil. It's not that it was created by God and good and it was simply fallen and needs to be redeemed, but that it was actually evil. So they would deny then that Jesus actually came in the flesh. There's no way that he could come and be in the flesh because that was by nature evil. And John wants us to know that you need to understand, you need to believe that Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus became man. He didn't become, he didn't come to earth as some sort of emanation or a, a strange spirit or a ghost-like figure. He came and took on the very nature of man. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And I want you to, when we read these verses, I want you to hear a little slight echo here or hear some uh, uh, connections to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Listen to what John says in his letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Notice, first of all, what he says there, that we have perceived this word of life through our senses. The word of life is matter. It is something of substance. It came in the flesh. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's foundational to our understanding of of Jesus to realize that he came as a man in the flesh. The second thing that that John wants us to remember is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. In 1 John 2, chapter 21 and 22, or excuse me, verse 21 and 22, he says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Now, in order for Jesus to be the Christ, in order for him to be the perfect sacrifice, blameless and sinless, in order for him to understand us, to be able to go through the same uh, experiences, the same temptations, to suffer in the same way that we do, he had to become a man. And so understanding that Jesus is the Christ, you first of all have to, to go back to the fact that he, of the incarnation. And then the third thing, John wants us to know that Jesus and his Father are one. When Jesus came to earth as a man, that did not mean that in any way his deity was diminished, that in any way he became lesser than the Father. And even though it's a difficult thing to wrap our head around, that paradox of Jesus being fully man and fully God, that's what we need to understand. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, he says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Those two are one and the same. Jesus came in the flesh, experienced everything that we did. He was the Christ, the the Messiah. And he could only be that by becoming man. But at the same time, that did not diminish his unity with his heavenly Father. So the first thing that John wants to deny is this concept that there is no no incarnation. The second thing that he wanted to uh, counteract was this teaching which we called antinomianism. That's a big word. And... uh, You don't need to remember that necessarily. Um, But antinomianism simply is a belief that because we are saved by faith through grace and not of our works, that the actions of the flesh are inconsequential. That 
Forgiveness is always there through faith because of God's grace and his mercy. So it really doesn't matter what we do in the flesh. Now, this is a kind of a, a, a strange teaching, and you would think, well, you know, I don't see any, you know, Gnostic or antinomian churches on each street corner. But I think all these things are things that can creep into our individual thinking at times. It's like the, uh, the teenage boy who was caught um, stealing, stealing bikes in particular, and he says, well, I asked God for a bike, but I know God doesn't really work that way, so I stole one and asked for forgiveness. So, <laughs> and that's what these antinomians really thought. It really didn't matter what you did because forgiveness was always there. Forgiveness was always possible. Now, what they fail to realize, however, is the effect that sin has on us. What sin does to us when we commit it. The first thing that John points out here is that sin keeps us from abiding in him. In chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Sin keeps us from abiding in Christ. We, we always have the, the possibility of, of forgiveness. We can, we can come to God and ask him to uh, forgive us of our sins when we confess and ask for it. But what happens is that we, we have a difficult time walking with God. We have a t- difficult time keeping in step with him. If we're going to walk with him, then we need to walk as he walked. Not wandering or, you know, walking slowly, keeping pace with, with God. We need to talk like he talked. And John says, sin keeps you from doing that. Keeps you from having that true abiding relationship with him. Another thing that sin does, it ties us to a dying world. In chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Another effect of sin is that it connects us to and ties us to a world that is slowly dying. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think one of the things that it does is that we, we, be, we begin to think the way the world does about sin. And we begin to think that sin can be justified in some way or another. And Again, you know, this applies to us on an individual level as much as it does as a church level. You know, how many times in in my life have I, you know, done something 
And my first thought is to justify that behavior in some way. And I begin to think about it the same way the world does, that sin in some way or another can be relative. That it may be wrong to lie in this circumstance, but maybe it's okay to lie in this situation. That, you know, in one circumstance, it's a sin, and in another one, it isn't. And that is thinking the same way that the world does. The Bible teaches us that God's commands are absolutes. And even though we might not be able to understand or to fathom how my uh, telling the truth in this particular situation is going to work and be good, part of my faith relationship is to trust God that if I tell the truth, he's going to honor that. I don't know what's going to happen because of it. I don't know what, circumst- what, uh, what the circumstances uh, dictate. I don't know how, what the outcome is going to be. I'm just going to honor God by obeying his commandments. And the third thing is uh, that, Paul, or that John warns us is that sin makes us antagonistic toward the law. We get angry sometimes when we realize I'm supposed to do this or I'm you know, not supposed to do this. You know, we, if you've had kids, you know, you obviously have experienced that. Give them some rules, and, and uh, it's one thing, you know, to break the rules, but then they, they get mad that there's a rule. Kids at school do that too, you know, they just get mad that there's a rule. Sin can make us antagonistic toward the law. In 1 John 3, 4, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The word lawlessness in the Greek is anomian, similar to antinomian, but it means the absence of law. When Paul teaches about freedom that we have in Christ, that when we become a Christian, we become free from the law of sin and death, he didn't mean that we should despise or ignore God's commandments, but instead, lovingly, willingly, follow them. John reinforces this understanding in 1 John 3, 9 and 10, when he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Notice what it says here, that God's seed abides in him. That when we become a Christian, that our understanding towards God's law is that it's a natural outgrowth or a natural outcome of my relationship with God. And if I am in some way antagonistic towards the law because of unconfessed or unrepented sin in my life, then that can be very, very destructive. And that leads us then to this, the third false teaching that John is trying to correct or John is trying to warn us of, found in 1 John 3.11. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That is what John is responding to this tendency in the part of the church at his time 
to practice a lovelessness. That a lovelessness was creeping into the church. That there, this you know, lovelessness, if you will, is inconsistent with authentic Christian faith. And at the time, there was uh, a real emphasis in the church on individual piety, on focusing so much on me as a believer. And the focus could be on a number of things. The focus could be on, on uh, dealing with temptation. Um, the focus could be on... Uh, understanding and gaining uh, more and more knowledge about uh, God and Christ and his word. The emphasis could be on, on me and how I am um, trying to achieve um, peace, how I'm trying to achieve maturity in Christ. And that these people had somehow, in the midst of all that, forgotten about the most basic commandment, and that is to, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so he was fighting against this lovelessness that he was seeing in the church. In 1 John 3.16, he says, By this we may know that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He points out Jesus as our love example. Jesus gave his life for us, and that should be our example in how we show love to others. I always think about um, when, you, when you think about laying down your life for someone, you, know, you think of heroes. And uh, we have had a spate of uh, superhero movies over the last maybe 20 years. How many of you have seen a superhero movie lately? Okay, they come. It seems like they come out you know every couple of months. And I always think about that. And you think you know a superhero? They're always famous for you know saving people's lives and and uh, you know jumping in the midst of the fray and helping out, but. But really, what does a superhero have to risk? I was watching the movie the other day, and here was this superhero, and he's, you know, bullets are flying and bombs are going off, and he's just walking through the, the crowd, and you know, things are ricocheting off of him, and bombs are exploding, and, and he rescues this, um, this girl and uh, gets her out of harm's way. And I'm thinking, is that really, you know, is that a, really an example of laying down your life for someone else? There's really no risk to him doing that. We are to risk our lives for others. We're to risk our comfort. We're to risk our um, uh, fortune by helping other people. In 1 John 3, 17 and 18, he, uh, he says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love is active. We have this example of Christ. We need to realize that love is active. You all know people like that who quietly, in the background, show love for others without any fanfare because they do things for others. Their love is active. And our church is full of people who demonstrate active love to their brothers and sisters. And it's a real blessing. In Matthew chapter 25, um, we, we learn about the fact that Anytime you, you know, clothe the naked and feed the hungry and give water to the thirsty and visit those who are in prison, 
that you are actively showing love to Jesus through what you do to others. And John wants to remind us that love has to be active. And then in 1 John 3, 24, he says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Love is necessary. It's a command. And that we need to to practice that um, and not let the focus of our faith become centered in us. Well, he's given us uh, a real good picture in the book of John of of God. He has tried his best to uh, counteract some of the, the false teachings that he was seeing at the time. And the last thing that John wants to do, or the third thing that we have here, is that he wants to encourage the believers in Christ. He wants to encourage us. In 1 John 3.13, he says, Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. The church needs to be encouraged because the church is hated by the world. Now, you know, sometimes the world um, likes the church, you know, when we do things uh, that they agree with. Uh, sometimes uh, the, the world likes the church when our interests, you know, tend to go together. Uh, sometimes the world loves the church when the church um, helps them in some way or another. But overall, and for the most part, what John says is true that the world hates the church. And John wants to remind us. He wants to encourage us. First of all, he wants to remind us of the promised Holy Spirit. The paraclete is a Greek word that John uses. He uses it in 1 John chapter 2, and then there are three verses in the Gospel of John that use this particular word paraclete. In John, uh, 1 John 2, 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The Holy Spirit acts as an advocate. That's what that word paraclete is, how it's translated in that verse. That the Holy Spirit speaks on our behalf to God. In John chapter 14, verse 16, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. The word helper is the way, it's tra- the way paraclete is translated in that particular verse. And he is the spirit of truth. That the paraclete is going to uh, always speak the truth to us. In John 14, 26, it says, But the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The, the Holy Spirit helps to uh, bring God's teaching to us helps us to understand the scriptures, helps us to know what God's will is as we, as we read and understand the word. And in John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That the paraclete is a witness to Jesus. Not just a witness to our own spirit. The Holy Spirit um, reconfirms all the time to us who Jesus is. But he also is a witness then to the world through us as to who Jesus is. He wants to remind us of the promised Holy Spirit. And then the last thing today is that he wants, to, he wants us to share in his absolute certainty. 
you turn over to John chapter, or 1 John chapter 5, in the last seven verses there, or verses 13, excuse me, that's, this would be eight verses, verses 13 through 20, the expression of the, the, the phrase that we may know or we know is repeated six times. The Greek word is oida. And I, I don't want to overburden you with Greek words, but I like, I like words. As an English teacher, I like to see how words are put together and how the Greek language and the Latin language have come together to create English words. And that makes sense to me a lot of times. And I, 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 I appreciate that. And this Greek word here is oida. Different than the word we talked about earlier, nos, which was used you know, to create the word gnostic or uh, agnostic, uh, words like that, okay? That word needs to know as well. But this word has a slightly different connotation to it. It means to perceive. Literally a seeing that becomes annoying. Not annoying like teenagers are, but, uh, <laughs> sorry Zach, a knowing, K-N-O-W-I-N-G, a seeing that becomes a knowing. John had a absolute certainty in his faith that he wants us to, to share. And he says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In verse 15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. In verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. In verse 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And in verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John wants to encourage us in the midst of the fact that the world may hate us and the fact that you know, we suffer and we, we, we deal with all sorts of, of difficulties in our life. He wants us to be assured that the Holy Spirit is in your life, that the Holy Spirit speaks the truth to you, that the Holy Spirit bears witness of who Jesus is. And he wants to assure us that the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel, is an absolute certainty. When we sang that song earlier uh, this morning, the one line in that song that says, I am a child of God. Yes, I am. That's the way we should all feel about our, our faith, the assurance that we have in Christ.